Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I am joined in our office by Adam Winkler, author of the new book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start off with something that I know that I had a misconception about, which is corporate personhood. It was my understanding prior to reading this book, I thought, oh, Citizens United, oh, all of these court cases that seem to expand the rights of businesses. This is all because of corporate personhood. And after reading this book, I realized that it's not a straightforward story like that. Could you talk a little bit about corporations and this idea that corporations are people and actually how businesses have been able to expand their civil rights. Sure. Well, you know, for all the controversy over whether, as Mitt Romney said, corporations are people, my friend, it turns out that actually there's been a long history of Supreme Court cases extending rights to corporations, but rarely has the court really relied on that principle of corporate personhood. What corporate personhood means in corporate law is that a corporation has its own independent identity in the eyes of the law, and it is wholly separate from the stockholders or the creditors or the managers. What the Supreme Court's often done in corporate rights cases, going back 200 years, is saying that corporations have rights because their members have rights. And so in many ways, the court has expanded the rights of corporations by ignoring the unique personhood of a corporation. You open the book with a discussion about American history and specifically post-colonialism. And, you know, certainly the story that I was told when I was a kid in primary school, you know, you learn about the pilgrims and these people who were trying to escape from religious persecution. But as you point out, that's not really the story of America. And the real story may be harder to make craft projects about. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, we're taught that uh, sort of the pilgrims are the founding colonists that we look to because they were fighting against tyranny, they were escaping the monarchy, and they were trying to assert their religious liberty. In so many ways, they embody the values of America as those values would come to be known. But 13 years before the pilgrims arrived at Plymouth Rock, there was already England's first permanent colony down in Jamestown, and that was a corporate enterprise. It was uh, run by the Virginia Company of London, a business corporation, one of England's first joint stock companies. And it was a business venture designed to go make money in the new world. It wasn't about pursuing freedom. It was about pursuing profit. And one of the things that I found interesting is you talk a little bit about the traditional British idea of the corporation and then how it sort of drifted to become in America. We'd certainly changed the idea of what a corporation's duties are and responsibilities are and and who it owes that to. Could you talk a little bit about how that shift happened and, and kind of where we are now? Sure. So in the colonial era, there were a lot of British corporations. They used the corporate form for all sorts of different things, from businesses to guilds to cities and towns, and even churches uh, were considered corporations for various purposes. But what happens is that the framers themselves harbor a certain hostility towards corporations. The framers, when they throw the tea overboard in the Boston Tea Party, it's not just a protest against the British government, as we've been taught in school. It was also a protest against the East India Company, one of the world's most powerful corporations at the time. And the East India Company had been too big to fail and was the recipient of a huge bailout when its profits plunged and threatened to bring down the financial markets of Europe. And part of that bailout was the ability to sell tea in the colonies without using American middlemen. And so one reason why the Boston Tea Party happened was 
an effort to throw the East India Company's tea overboard in protest to this big, powerful corporation. So um, the relationship between corporations and the founders was a complicated one. And you mentioned, you know, actually a battle between Jefferson and Hamilton and one of the early and seminal court cases that arose from it, the Bank of the United States versus DeVoe. Could we get just a quick little background on that one? Because it certainly wasn't a case that I had heard about, but then I haven't been to law school. It's really one of the neglected cases of American constitutional law. And in fact, had you gone to law school, I guarantee you, you would have not studied this case because no one's ever really studied this case. It's It's kind of a lost case. And it's the first Supreme Court case to say that business corporations have constitutional rights too. That case was decided in 1809, a half century before the first Supreme Court cases on the rights of African Americans or the rights of women, showing how long it's been that corporations have been fighting to win equal rights under the Constitution. So we do have this very, very long history of corporations seeking constitutional rights. You mentioned the Bank of the United States. It was the source of the rise of the competing two political parties as Jefferson and Hamilton split over the controversial bank. It also gave us a very memorable rap battle in Hamilton the musical (laughs) and also gave us the first Supreme Court case on the rights of corporations. The Bank of the United States was the richest and most powerful corporation in America. And the story of the Supreme Court that I tell in my book is that while we think of it as a bulwark for protecting minority rights, in fact, it's usually been a bulwark to protect the most powerful corporations from being regulated. I have to say, just as a human person, reading the book, there's a little bit of a strange horror movie vibe when you think about an entity that has no physical form and cannot die (laughs) <laughs> but has has rights and, and all of this. But one of the things you point out is these corporations whose lives last much longer than any of our lives have or will and, you know, generation through generations and centuries. Do you think that this length of life, in addition to the amount of money that corporations control, is one of the reasons so many court cases over civil rights disputes involve corporations and are won by corporations rather than human individuals with our much shorter lifespans. Right. The perpetual life of corporations could have an impact on constitutional claims. I think perhaps maybe the the thing that accounts for it even more so, though, is the uh, resources amassed with the help of the corporate form. What those resources mean is that the corporations are uniquely able to hire the best, most sophisticated, most expensive lawyers in the country and always have. When we think about the civil rights movements, they've traditionally relied on volunteer lawyers. They're generally underfunded. But corporations have the money to hire the best brightest lawyers and to make the most novel and creative constitutional arguments. Uh, And that's what we've seen over the course of American history. Corporations have hired great lawyers like Daniel Webster, considered one of the great lawyers in the history of America, argued over 200 Supreme Court cases. Um, And he represented mostly business corporations and argued several important Supreme Court cases in the early days, arguing for constitutional protections for business corporations. As oral arguments were being held in a tavern rather than, you know, there's some really great scenes for our listeners in this book and our listeners who are lawyers, there are quite a few characters in this book that for good or ill, you know, you see how an individual lawyer can have an immense impact on the course of American constitutional law. And, you know, for a a complicated figure, let's bring up uh, Roscoe Conkling, who I mentioned to you right before this interview started, had an outsized and instinctive dislike for ever since I first read about him and feel validated. Could you tell, talk a little <laughs> bit about Roscoe Conkling? 
an excerpt of this book appeared in The Atlantic, which I'll link to for our listeners. But talk a little bit about Roscoe Conkling and the San Mateo County versus Southern Pacific Railroad case. Well, Roscoe Conkling was a lawyer for the Southern Pacific Railroad Company back in the 1880s when the Southern Pacific Railroad launched a remarkable series of what its lawyers called test cases, 60 of them in all, seeking to expand the rights of corporations under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which provides a right for equal protection of the laws. And Roscoe Conkling was not just uh, an illustrious lawyer. He had actually been a leader of the Republican Party for decades in Congress, had been nominated and confirmed to to sit on the Supreme Court himself, but had turned down the seat after being confirmed, the last person ever to turn down a seat on the Supreme Court after receiving a favorable vote by the Senate. And his reason was, frankly, financial. He was making too much money as a lawyer for the railroads to join the Supreme Court. And he argued in the Southern Pacific case that the 14th Amendment was written not just to protect the rights of the newly freed slaves, but also to protect the rights of business corporations. And strangely enough, Conkling was uniquely situated to make that argument. He had been a drafter of the 14th Amendment. He had been on the very committee that had written the amendment. And he told the justices that that the drafting committee had intended to protect corporations and had used the word persons in the 14th Amendment specifically to, he said, quote, embrace artificial as well as natural persons. And it turns out that Roscoe Conkling just told the justices a bald-faced lie. And yet years later, um, the cases that he argued would be recognized for expanding the rights of business corporations. Moving to the Lochner era, which I had always understood... This is a period of time between about 1897 to 1936, and it was a period of time in which our popular history says the Supreme Court and, and our justice system in general was very hostile to labor rights and, and very beneficial to corporations. But you found a slightly more complicated tale there. Could you talk a little bit about the Lochner era? Sure. And uh, people's understanding of the Lochner era is correct. The court was very business-friendly during this period, struck down a number of laws regulating business from federal child labor laws to maximum hour laws, minimum wage laws, even zoning laws on behalf of businesses. At the same time, the Supreme Court narrowly read the 14th Amendment when it came to the rights of African-Americans, who were the intended beneficiaries of the 14th Amendment. In fact, there was an empirical study, maybe the first empirical study of Supreme Court cases done in 1913. And the person went back and looked at every Supreme Court case on the 14th Amendment since it had been ratified in 1868. And he found that there had been 28 Supreme Court cases on the rights of African-Americans and 312 cases on the rights of business corporations. So we do have a lot of rights recognized for corporations. One of the things that's interesting that you may be referring to is that actually the business-friendly court imposed limits on the rights of corporations and that the Lochner-era court was the first Supreme Court to to say that corporations had property rights, rights to protect their property from being seized by the government, but not liberty rights, rights associated with personal conscience or political freedom. And that is another question that, again, it feels a little eldritor, like, can a corporation have a race and can a corporation have a religion? And there have been cases that actually struggle with this. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that and that you cover in the book and, and some of those 
court cases that raise those questions. Right. Even if you think corporations might be people for various legal purposes, uh, you probably think it's still absurd to think of a corporation as having a race, like being a black corporation or a white corporation. But actually, there's a whole bunch of legal principles that add up to that. So, for instance, we have affirmative action laws where if you're a, a certified minority business enterprise, where you're 51% of your ownership is minority, you can be considered an African-American corporation for purposes of public contracting and affirmative action laws. So there are uh, cases where corporations claim to have a racial identity. In recent years, the court has stoked quite a bit of controversy by saying corporations can have religious freedom. In the Hobby Lobby case, for instance, the Supreme Court said that corporations had religious liberty under a federal statute and carved out an exemption from Obamacare's mandate to cover birth control in employee health plans for Hobby Lobby. Interestingly, what the court said in the Hobby Lobby case was not that corporations like Hobby Lobby have religion, but that we had to protect the rights of Hobby Lobby to assert religion in order to protect the rights of the members of the corporation, in this case, the Green family that owns Hobby Lobby. The court was really concerned about infringing their rights. And then I'd love to move on to, I think, the most recent case that got the most hubbub. And certainly, I feel like I understand it better having read We the Corporations than I did prior to this, which is Citizens United. And you say in this, that I'll just read a little bit from the book. It says, judicial activism is often just a label given to court rulings someone opposes. In Citizens United, however, the charge was not without justification. Could you discuss a little bit Citizens United, the reasoning it turned on, and how that may be a departure from what past courts have really thought and said. Sure. I mean, the most activist thing about Citizens United is that it reached a constitutional question. Do corporations have First Amendment rights to spend money on politics that none of the litigants asked the court to rule on? And so it seemed activist because the the justices themselves decided to reach out and decide a question that had not been briefed and argued in the lower courts, first and foremost. The Citizens United case held ultimately that corporations have the same free speech right as individuals to spend their money to influence elections for candidates. It's not the first time the courts have dealt with that issue. And in fact, I found cases 100 years ago where business corporations tried to overturn campaign finance laws restricting corporate money in elections. This was in the run-up to prohibition and beer beer companies wanted to spend money on local elections in the run-up to prohibition. Yet courts 100 years ago universally upheld these campaign finance laws, saying that the right to influence elections belongs only to natural persons, not artificial persons. But that decision certainly has stimulated a tremendous amount of public debate. And it certainly inspired me to write this book to think more critically about how did corporations gain our most fundamental rights? They don't march in the street. There's not a civil rights movement for corporations in the way that we had for racial minorities or for women. But there has been this really remarkable 200-year series of Supreme Court cases where corporations are seeking ever greater share of our individual rights. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that the American public has about corporations and, you know, their role in our society or their legal status? Well, certainly one of the surprises is how powerful they are in courts. You know, we think about corporate power. We often think about, especially after Citizens United, corporations spending their money to influence lawmakers, lobbying or taking out election ads. And that's certainly an important way in which corporations exercise their power. But what I've tried to show in the book, too, is that 
the corporations have also infiltrated the court system. And although we think of the courts as being driven by equality and blind justice and no one gets an advantage, in fact, the system really is designed for people with money to take the most advantage of. And the reason why corporations have had such a successful 200-year history of fighting for their rights is because the court system is designed for those who can afford the best lawyers to make the best cases and to challenge the most laws. That's who the system favors. And so if you want to think about why were there only 28 14th Amendment cases on the rights of African Americans in the first half century? Well, in part because there's no money to finance litigation. Whereas for businesses, there was always the resources to fight against any law that restricted business activity. You brought up Daniel Webster, whose nickname was or who you refer to as the corporation's lawyer. But this also seems like a great time to bring up Lewis Powell, who you refer to as the corporation's justice. Just for our listeners who may not be super well-versed in Supreme Court history, could you give us a little rundown on who Lewis Powell was and what he achieved when he was a Supreme Court justice? Lewis Powell is definitely one of the central figures in We the Corporations. Uh, Lewis Powell was nominated to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon in 1971 and served for about 25 years on the Supreme Court, or a little bit less than that, to be honest. But served a long time. And right before he was appointed to the Supreme Court, he wrote a memorandum for the Chamber of Commerce. This was the era of Ralph Nader and the consumer rights movement. And this memorandum outlines a way in which corporate America and business interests can fight back against Nader and the rise of the left in America. And he lays out the strategy for corporations to assert their political power. And it becomes a very influential strategy and strategic planning document for the rise of the new right that ultimately leads to the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. And once he becomes a member of the Supreme Court, Lewis Powell gets the chance to actually operationalize his own strategy memorandum and rules in cases like a 1970s case, 30 years before Citizens United, that expanded the political speech rights of corporations to spend money on ballot measure campaigns. So you have Lewis Powell, who not only tries to encourage others to get involved in politics, but actually becomes the deciding vote in a Supreme Court case expanding the First Amendment rights of business corporations. Having reported this book now, you know, this is a history and an accounting of what's gone on in the past. As you look to the future, where do you think the areas of emerging litigation are when it comes to corporate civil rights? So I think we're seeing a real hotbed of activity in the area of corporate constitutional rights. So in addition to cases like Citizens United and Hobby Lobby, which of course have garnered a lot of press, the biggest case before the Supreme Court this term involves a baker and a bakery that refused to sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. And although it's phrased in the public debate mostly about the rights of the baker, the case, it's called Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited, is brought in the name of a corporation too. And it's the corporation at the end of the day that is being forced by Colorado to serve all comers. So there are certainly lots of cases we're likely to see more and more corporations raising religious or speech objections to serving LGBT people, same-sex couples. And we're also seeing corporations very aggressively use the First Amendment to fight against regulation. We've already seen businesses succeed in overturning graphic cigarette warning labels, rules requiring disclosure of conflict minerals. And indeed, one recent study found that 50% of First Amendment cases today are brought by corporations and trade associations fighting against laws enacted to require 
businesses to disclose information? I've seen floating around on various social media and, and websites, you know, you see proposals for, oh, you know, if we had a new constitutional convention, if we introduced a constitutional amendment saying the corporations are not people, this would solve everything. Do you actually think that that is a viable solution? Is that something that people could get behind to redefine in the constitution a corporation? Or is that sort of not realistic in our constitutional system? Well, it's a great point. We've seen 19 states have signed on or endorsed at least the idea of a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. And big public interest groups like Common Cause and Public Citizen have come out in favor of a constitutional amendment that would declare that corporations are not people and have no rights under the Constitution. I actually think that I sympathize with those who are frustrated with corporate power today. Um, but I think the amendment is a mistake. If corporations had no rights under the Constitution, then the government could seize their property to build the highway without paying just compensation. That can't be right. If corporations had no rights, well, the government wouldn't need to go to court to try to get Apple to open up a suspected terrorist iPhone. They could literally just command Apple to do it and seize Apple's assets if they refused. So corporations must have due process rights. And certainly, I don't think anyone wants CNN and the New York Times, both corporations, to be able to be censored by Donald Trump. So I think that the corporations need some basic legal protections. I think what's become so controversial in recent years is that the Supreme Court has moved beyond just granting corporations property rights and started to protect more and more liberty rights for corporations like political speech in Citizens United or religious liberty in the Hobby Lobby case. And I think that the answer is not blunderbuss no rights for corporations because that would go too far in giving government too much power, nor should we have the approach that the Supreme Court currently seems to be on, which is that corporations should have all the same rights as individuals. Corporations should only have those rights that are appropriate for corporations. I think that means they should have basic property rights and due process rights, but don't need the rights of religious freedom and personal conscience, given that they are legally created entities that are defined by law to pursue profit. If our readers, having, of course, picked up the book, We the Corporations by Adam Winkler, want to learn more about you or read other things that you've written, where should they go? And, and you actually wrote several years ago a book that many people might be interested in called Gunfight. Could you talk a little bit about that project and, and how people can get in touch with you? Sure. If you want to get in touch with me, you can always follow me on Twitter at Adam Winkler or uh, drop me a note there. Or uh, I've got a web page through UCLA, uh, including a web page for We the Corporations. And you can always get in touch with me in that fashion. I wrote Gunfight, I guess, about 10 years ago now. It was published in 2011, finally. And it was also my effort to go back into the history, somehow like this case, uh, like this book, We the Corporations. After Citizens United, I really wanted to see what was the history here? What, how did we get to this moment? And the same thing with gunfight. How did we get to this moment in the Second Amendment where things seem to have gone so off the rails? And like We the Corporations, I think my book Gunfight had a lot of real surprising, fascinating discoveries in it that when we go back and look into the history, that things are much different than we often think. And for instance, in the area of guns, it turns out that gun control is as much a part of the story of guns in America as the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, that the Founding Fathers had gun control, the Wild West had gun control, that gun control really is an important part of our story, too, and that we've been sold the sort of bill of goods, if you will, that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms and warns against any form of gun control. When the truth is our history is much more balanced. We've generally had gun rights, but we've also had reasonable efforts to try to restrain gun violence and to keep guns out of the hands of the most dangerous people. Okay. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.